Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. My guest today is Dr. Kate Tumulty Felice. Kate started her career as a detective in her county's prosecutor's office. She investigated cases such as homicide, sexual assault, child abuse, and narcotics offenses. While she loved her job and helped others in that way, life continued to drive her toward teaching, and eventually she decided on a path that is more proactive than reactive. She has taught at various levels before settling into higher education and teacher preparation. She believes that learning is a reciprocal process and should be fun, engaging, and inclusive no matter the age level. She is currently working on legislation and other initiatives to promote an integrative and holistic approach to prioritizing well-being in all facets of schools, organizations, and advocacy. She has served on various college and community councils and committees and has spoken nationally on issues including anti-bullying legislation, mindfulness and holistic health for kids, resiliency, and adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. She's a single mother of two kids, a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. So between family, work, and community, she has a full plate. We're going to learn a lot more about Kate, her previous work in law enforcement, her current work in education, and much more in this episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. It's good to have you with us today. How's how's Jersey been treating you? <laughs> Aside from the weather, it has been just fine. Thank you, and it's really good to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for thanks for being here. So, we're recording this here on December 10th, and I guess at some point it gets a little stale to talk about what you did for Thanksgiving. But I'll ask you, and I promise you'll be the last guest that I ask this. How was your Thanksgiving? It was eventful and interesting. I had a big plan to make a um, a huge dinner for my family, and um, my heater broke and my oven broke both the day before Thanksgiving. Don't Ouch. know what happened or how life managed to do that, but we we managed. We uh, we winged it, which is much how life goes in my world, and uh, we made it work. And it actually ended up being a great holiday. So thank you what, for asking. What did your winging plan consist of? How did you how did you wing it? <laughs> Fortunately, my sister doesn't live far, so it was kind of running around the corner with a big turkey in a pot and saying, can you please put this in your oven? <laughs> so, yeah, nice. it, was, it was interesting. Good How about job. yours? How was your Thanksgiving? It was, uh, it was very low-key. We uh, actually ended up just eating with neighbors across the street with a last-minute plan. Uh, my wife and I, we've got two little ones, and we decided that we were going to make it very low stress. And as a matter of fact, we were just planning on just saying thanks and not even having a big meal. And then our neighbors across the street invited us over at the last second. So we got to enjoy the meal without any of the prep or the cleanup afterwards. So it was uh, it was very nice. So before I get into our questions, I'm trying to start every show by letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path and then further why we're doing this show specifically. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, 
acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast specifically is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. So listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Okay, that part out of the way. We'll get into our questions, Kate. So I covered your bio in an intro that was pre-recorded, and I've covered your professional background where you stated uh, kind of what you're doing and what you've done, and which is a ton. And I briefly <laughs> mentioned your family. Um, before we kind of get into that professional background, uh, what like small details would you like people to know about Kate? Absolutely. Thanks. Um, well, I'm usually a fly low under the radar kind of person. Um, so I, I'm not used to this format, but I appreciate it because this is really my passion and what my hobbies are, if I have any, are um, more work, but I don't consider it work if it's something you really enjoy doing. So um, I have two kids who are my world, so their life is kind of my life. And um, in furthering that and, and using the things that I learn, because my day job, I teach psychology and education, is really just trying to find ways to um, make our world a little bit better and to show them that this can be a better world. So I think a lot of my hobbies are what they're doing and trying to point them in the right path. And I think by doing that, you end up in a better path too. So that's kind of how I stumbled a lot along the work that you do. And I seek out, you know, when you different things happen to you in life and your training and your experience starts to align you with things that make sense to you. Um, it gives you your hobbies. It builds them in, you know, you share those experiences and that's how you make your contacts and figure out what you like to do in this world. Right. Right. Definitely. I love that. And, and one of the professional pieces that we're going to get into is kind of how you and I connected. But before we get into that, I wanted to discuss your your professional life as a major crimes and narcotics detective how did how did that start and why <laughs> I did got that, into start? that kind of yeah kind of by accident really i um i thought that i wanted to be a um a, a lawyer at some point so i figured um you know let me have these some experiences as i'm going to college and um i knew i didn't want to be a police officer i think it's a wonderful job my dad was a police officer he was actually uh, shot in the line of duty he lived but our family and he lived with the repercussions of that and that's part of the inspiration for what i do and what inspired me professionally was what somebody goes through and what happens um in how you deal with that and when you don't deal with that um so to answer your question, I kind of thought, let, let me try this, you know, a different route. I still was fascinated by, um, you know, serving and protecting people. And so I thought while I was in college and pondering law school, I'd do an internship. And so I did an internship at a prosecutor's office and I saw what the detectives did. I kind of missed the part where they had years and years of experience. And I was too young and naive to realize I didn't have those things. <laughs> so I threw my resume in and happened to be in the right place at the right time. And at the uh, age of 21, uh, became a detective in a major crimes unit, working in homicide, suicide, a lot of sex assaults and assaults against children, um, which also has been a lot of my inspiration. And then uh, I was done a little stint in narcotics. Um, so I kind of ended up there by accident as a very sheltered young kid who didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> Did you have to do any type of police academy to go into that? 
I did, yeah. So I was uh, still full-time college and um, starting law school, which I decided to go with the career and uh, the police academy rather than follow that route. So my education kind of took a different path, um, which also led me to where I am. But life has a funny way of of taking you in a different direction. So I did go through a police academy, um, and that prepared me um, as much as it can for, for the job that I went into. Yeah, and that's actually, I'm, I'm glad you said that as much as it can prepare you, because that's that's kind of the next question that I have is, is what is the, the craziest thing you saw in that line of work? There was a lot. I was a pretty sheltered kid, and I didn't realize how much until you get into the world and you start to experience things. And I don't think you process them until much later mm-hmm. <laughs> and see things with the, that 2020 hindsight. Um, so I think that for a kid to see, you know, homicide and suicide and sex assault, that had a huge impact. Um, and then, you know, to take a different route um, into narcotics, I think some of the craziest things I saw were really um, based on my own naivety. I, I remember my first, um, my very first undercover, I, you know, I was all wired up and I was ready to be really important and, you know, arrest the bad guys and all this kind of thing. And, and I went down a a street to to buy the drugs which I knew nothing about drugs I literally had to ask somebody if this was a good deal for cocaine like I had (laughs) no idea I once bought $900 worth of I think it was laundry soap because I didn't know what it looked like and so I go down the street yeah I had no clue and I I went down the street and uh and you know saw the the person who was supposed to be selling it and I'm saying the description in my you know into my wire in my jacket and I'm saying you know the suspect is approaching the suspect is wildly gesturing at me, and, and now I'm thinking, uh-oh, there's a backup team. You know, this is a big deal, and I said, he's, he's yelling at me, and he's wildly gesturing. He's approaching my car, and, and I'm really ready to key everyone in until I realize that what he's saying is, you're going the wrong way on a one-way street. <laughs> <laughs> that was on me, and he was so kind. Listen, I got to say, there's a fine line sometimes between who's good and who's bad or who's a good guy and who's a bad guy, and yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with life circumstances. And couldn't have been any nicer. Came up to the car and said, honey, the cops are going to come if you keep going the wrong way on this one-way street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this was the, the suspect that you were looking at. Yes, it was. Wow. Indeed. Um, That's The suspect wild. who helped me out, you know. I guess I didn't break that law anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it was funny. interesting. And, and a lot of my experiences went that way with my, um, I guess, naivety propelling me towards learning more yeah, <laughs> or at least right. trying to. So you mentioned, you know, the processing of, of seeing some of the things that you saw at a young age. Um, I'm sure that was disturbing, maybe changed your perception of humanity. Um did you struggle mentally with that work at all? And if so, what did you do to cope with what you saw and how it affected you? Absolutely. I think in the moment when you're surrounded by everyone and you're in the experience and you're trying to fit in and make sense of that world, you don't really fully process it. It's almost like there's a built-in defense mechanism, maybe like a blend of denial, fight or flight, even the exhilaration of what you're experiencing. But I think it's later when you're alone and it's quiet and you're tired. And sometimes it's that soul aching tired, but you can't rest. And I don't know that you put words to it or um, really understand what you're coming down from. Um, But I think it's in that separation of that experience that there really aren't 
words to describe it, and you feel like people wouldn't understand it anyway, and you really don't even have the desire to explain it. And I think that's where the struggle um, most came in was I don't think you even realize that you're trying to cope with something. Mm-hmm. And later in life, I've had other experiences um, that have been that impactful. You know, um, I found out that my mom was terminal and my marriage was over in a day. I've been through, you know, seen some different things in the world that, you know, when you see things that happen to kids, I think that hit me a lot harder. And whether it's, you know, job related, life related, or often both um, that impact, I think you go into that survival mode and you don't realize you're not really coping at all. So it's taken some perspective to, and so it's, it's a struggle every day to kind of, and I think it is for any of us to, to look, you know, that in the face and not uh, push it aside. Um, So I think I struggled. And I think part of the the coping is realizing that you're struggling, (laughs) if that makes sense. Absolutely. It does. And I think that's where a lot of the military struggle actually is that we're taught basically to kind of put our feelings aside, put them in a box, deal with those later, and that later never comes. And we don't process it until we maybe are five, 10 years down the road, or maybe we're getting out of the military and now we've completely changed our path. And now it's time to process it. And we don't even know how to process it. And it starts to affect us in ways that we never never saw coming. Um, and, And that's really, one of the reasons that we at Veterans Path do what we do is, is give veterans the tools to process these emotions that they're going to experience down the road. Um, whether it's mindfulness or meditation, whether it's yoga, whether it's just being at peace, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of tools that, we, that we're helping to get veterans through that, that processing phase. Absolutely. I think that's why it's so important because you know, we find, we realize partway through our lives, we're existing, we're not living, we're just getting by. Right. And those tools are hard tools to grab sometimes, you know, but once you have them, I think it, it changes, it changes everything. So what you do is really important. Absolutely. So I brought you on the show because you have a compelling story in both your past and, and what you're doing now. But before we get into that, and what you're doing now specifically, I just want to take a second here to put in a quick plug for our sponsors. All right, welcome back. Getting back into our questions here with former major crimes detective turned educator, Dr. Kate Tumulty Felice. Now, Kate, you've transitioned from being a major crimes detective to being an educator. When, how, and why did that transition take place? Um, yeah, that. so I was in uh, law enforcement for about five years or so, maybe a little more, and um, I continued teaching. I was teaching at the police academy. I was teaching um, in schools, doing some programs. I used to have a D.A.R.E. program in schools, and I um, put that in some schools and wanted to be a part of it, and uh, even taught Sunday school. I just really loved teaching, and sometimes life propels you towards a path, and you're still thinking you know what you're doing, so you follow the one you're on, and um, I had an opportunity to get a master's degree um, through a, the state police. They had a graduate studies program. So I thought, well, I'll do that because I can do it while I'm working. And I did love the job I was doing, but I also had this passion and I had always kind of played around with the idea of being a teacher. And I liked the idea of being proactive and helping people, um, 
sooner before more so than reactive when um you know your chances change or your or your experiences changed so i did you know get the masters and it happened to be just the way life is kind of funny in um education so i thought all right life i hear you you know you're trying to give me some signs i guess i'll listen to a few of them and my own personal life kind of aligned well with let me try a change while I can, you know, before I had too many huge responsibilities and that kind of thing. So I thought I'll try it for a year and I'll come back. If I hate teaching, I'll, you know, it's not the path for me. I'll come back. And uh, it's been a lot of years and I haven't gone back. So um, it propelled me in a different direction. So I've, I've taught at different levels, um, middle school, high school, and then was adjuncting in college and have settled into the college environment for uh, the last 10 years um, full-time and uh, that's given me a lot of opportunities to still work with the populations I mentioned because there's so many parallels in terms of the long-term consequences of exposure to challenges that we all face in life between a lot of those vulnerable populations whether they're veterans whether they're police officers whether they're kids that we have these outcomes when we deal with stress or we try to deal with stress and they're not that far apart. And I think that's kind of put me to where I am professionally right now. Right. And one of the things that we spoke about a few weeks back, since you talked about those long-term outcomes, those long-term health outcomes, um, one of the terms that you used was ACEs. And that was actually not a, an acronym that I was familiar with for the audience that's adverse childhood experiences. Can you explain for our audience what ACEs are and what the long-term health outcomes are? Sure, absolutely. So I kind of, years ago, um, stumbled upon the idea of ACEs um, when I watched the TED Talk by uh, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who um, kind of came upon this research as well on adverse childhood experiences. And the research really was a study done, and it looked at um, different variables that they considered adverse childhood experiences, things like physical, emotional, sexual abuse, um, household challenges, things like domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, parental separation, incarceration, neglect, that kind of thing, and um, had, I think it was about 17,000 people take this, this study to see what their ACE score would be. And the higher the score they found was um, dose specific across the life the lifetime, meaning the higher your ACE score or exposures um, or doses of adversity, the higher um, your long-term rate of uh, heart disease, cancers, depression, suicidality, um, and just to name a few. Wow. And yeah, and so when they first looked at that, they figured, okay, you have a tough life. And so you have a, you know, stress because of that life, probably sure. some uh, coping mechanisms that are less than healthy. And so that's why. And they found that there's more to it than that, that really it changes how your development occurs. It changes your, you know, having these adverse experiences changes your gene expression and your, uh, you on a cellular level, um, long term. So it really is, it, it was kind of, you know, life-changing for me to think that I knew that these experiences that people face, whether it's, um, you know, like I said, veterans, law enforcement officers, first responders, kids. I work with kids in schools, and some of them, you know, when we do mindfulness, I have to say, will you change, close your eyes, not close your eyes, because it can be triggering and it can be traumatic for some kids because of some of the experiences they've had. 
which is heartbreaking, but shines some light on those adverse childhood experiences and how it really changes them long-term developmentally over time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely things that we as, I guess, general population, I'm sure, take for granted. Yes, uh, there's adverse um, adversity that has to be overcome when people are, get those doses that you mentioned, but we don't realize the, the health implications that come with that. And then with that health, you know, they get even further stressed and it's kind of a downward spiral and, and then getting out of that downward spiral requires so much effort. So what's, what's been the feedback from, from the kids and the, and the teachers and other participants? It's been really cool. So I got to be part of a consortium of people who work in this area in various facets of kind of wellness and trauma-informed schools and ACEs mitigation. And I went to a consortium of a group called Whole Health Ed, and they were different people who had things like we discussed, mindfulness, uh, nature education, nutrition, cognitive movement. And, you know, we're all doing these amazing things to try and help mitigate some of these social determinants and and lifestyle issues and and lifelong issues, I should say. And we're working in silos, you know, and and we have really cool things going on, but we're immersed in our world, trying to help our world. And I went to this group and and, and kind of got an eye-opener of some of the, and since then I've even worked with more people and connected more dots that, you know, there's a lot of beautiful solos going on, but we have a great chorus. So let's see what we're all doing and, and how it impacts each other. So I figured boots on the ground, let's go into a school and just, and do this stuff. Let's bring some of these people in and work with the kids. So we did some really cool pieces, um, mindfulness. We had uh, some people come in and do nature education. Uh, We had some chefs from an organization called Wellness in the Schools come in and teach the kids not only how to cook, but they cooked it themselves. So we had kids peeling garlic and kids grating cheese and making cheap, but or I should say affordable, but really healthy food. Um, and then we taught them some movement, non-competitive just movement, you know, all of this, and wanted to expose them to that. So before I started, I, I gave them a little survey and I said, what's your stress level? And this was sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And most of them on a scale of one to five were five. And Sixth graders? Sixth, sixth graders? seventh, and eighth graders. Wow. Yeah. And their stress level is at five. Yeah, and for real reasons. You yeah. know, at first we think kids, you know, well, what is it because you have a hard test? And it wasn't. It was things, you know, do you have a safe adult? Do you feel safe in school? Do you have friends? Do you feel good about yourself? And there were some really some answers that I don't think would shock anybody, but it's still really disheartening. Sure. And so the idea was let's give them some opportunities to just take a little bit of accountability for their them themselves, their own well being and to realize they matter and they're important. So it was linking these things like mindfulness, but also them to the community to have some other people come in to show them that they do matter and people do care, whether that's by having law enforcement officers come in, by working with some of the veterans. Some of my students uh, at the college went to work with them, some of those students' veterans, um, to work with these kids so they had real-life people, you know, just kind of showing them, hey, I do it too. I have these struggles too, you know. And uh, the feedback was amazing. You know, I had kids – you know, staying at the end of the food sessions because they were eating whatever was left because that might be the only good meal they have each day. You know, I had, yeah. And, and kids doing mindfulness and teaching other people in their family to do mindfulness just because they learned it in school and they knew it might help. And I even had one little girl that, you know, I kind of gave them a prompt and it was just, 
you know, wellness does what? And she put wellness saved my life. And I was like, wow, you know, it's kind of a, you don't realize sometimes the struggles. And we always say that you don't, you know, you can't see on someone necessarily what struggles they carry, but the, the load's pretty heavy for a lot of them. Right. And I mean, I know that's got to be heartbreaking to see that initial assessment and, and even hear that comment about mindfulness help to save this young woman's life. But at the same time, it's got to be really rewarding to see the difference, the positive impact that you and your volunteers are having with our youth. Definitely. And, you know, I think that and seeing the connections that are able to be made, that there are other vulnerable groups and all of us are vulnerable. This life isn't that easy, you know, and, <laughs> and so that there's so many connections that can be made. At the same time, I was looking at uh, New Jersey's really on a, I think, a wave of sorts toward resiliency, toward looking at our organizations as being more trauma informed and um, mitigating ACEs and, and some of these stress factors and social determinants. And I started to look into resiliency and dig around a little bit. And um, there's really a resiliency movement by our attorney general and by people um, in law enforcement trying to not only work with schools, but also work with officers and first responders to be more resilient, to come up with things that can change us, um, how our brain functions and how we step out of or away from a constant state of fight or flight. And so I've tried to reach a little bit beyond schools and connect that to some of these bigger movements that are going on. I'm glad you brought up the, the resiliency training because um, those who've gone through our Veterans Path events, they've learned how to use meditation and mindfulness to improve their resilience. And you mentioned the, the resiliency training movement um, and, and then growing that. Is there, is there a goal to, to actually grow that outside of the New, Jer New Jersey area? I hope so. And I think there has to be. Um, there's a, a, a requirement now in New Jersey schools to incorporate social emotional learning. And that's part of a national consortium and even the whole health ed movement trying to um, optimize these health altering factors in schools. It's also part of a national movement. And again, it's kind of like I said, with the silos, there's people all over the country that are doing these things and the people doing it, teachers, you know, police officers, veterans, inherently, we know the necessity of this stuff. Parents, we know how much our kids need a way to regulate their emotions, to calm down, to, you know, know how to effectively deal in this world. And as you well know, you know, a lot of this work changes us and how we utilize our brain, our executive function, um, you know, building that connection between the prefrontal cortex and decision making and right. pausing so that we're not propelled by emotion. And I think that that's a bigger movement that I feel like people are starting to catch on to, you know, that we tend to be, and if we look at just the, the charge of our culture, we tend to be very reactive. And there's a habitual component to reactivity, you know, that you become by habit, you react over and over the same way. And I think it's kind of a movement toward in a lot of different places and capacities, rewiring that and teaching people to respond in adaptive ways. Absolutely. And I, I do, I see a movement there. And I'm thankful for it. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I teach on the side is, is how we get stuck in these ruts of, 
um, reacting a certain way. And that becomes what we think is part of our personality. But really, that's, that's something that we can, in fact, change. And we can do that by using meditation and mindfulness and kind of refocusing our mind, uh, rewiring between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex that you mentioned before and, and responding rather than reacting. And you mentioned that that was one of the whole reasons that you got in the teaching and what it is you're doing now versus what you were doing in the police force or as a detective where you're more reactive than proactive. So it's, it's almost a way that our mind, we can train our mind to become almost proactive and respond instead of react. Um, so Absolutely. Um, how can our listeners help you and the programs that you're working on? Definitely. I think, um, you know, anyone interested in these kinds of programs, like I said, I, I'm a fly load under the radar kind of girl, but I like to find like-minded people and, and really mission oriented people who are on the same mission. And the more I've looked, there are more and more of them. And what's great about that is I haven't found one yet that says, nah, I'm doing enough. (laughs) Everybody wants to do just a little bit more and connect. And really, it makes us all work more efficiently and effectively. So I think when we have similar programs and programs that have that synergy of mission, um, if anybody, you know, thinks that there's that opportunity for collaboration, how I work, when I see something that inspires me and has a similar mission, I track down the person. I say, okay, how can we collaborate and advance what we're both doing? How can we, you know, make that work better and right. and for more people? And you were wonderful in that, and I think that that's a really important uh, way to do things. So I think that opportunity for collaboration, um, even when it doesn't always seem evident, even with the work with law enforcement, I did a survey, and I asked, you know, how similar to what I asked the kids, how stressed are you, and would you participate in resiliency training that included mindfulness, that included nutrition. And almost 90% of the respondents, and, almost 200 respondents said, absolutely. Wow. And when I added on, would you work with kids? I think it was 92% of respondents, kids on mindfulness, kids in nutrition. Yup, I do that too. Nice. So I think there's that want to do it. And if I am a dot connector, that's one thing I would look for help. And <laughs> I would say, let's keep connecting dots. And if there's a copacetic program, you know, let's let's figure out a way to connect it. And if it's not exactly me, then maybe someone else who's doing something that, you know, um, that continues that movement and and that kind of thing. So that's one way people can help. And I think, you know, reaching out, I mean, always I, I say to seek out help but that's a harder thing than to just make it a tagline you know so so how i think we need task oriented ways of doing that you know and the best thing about most of the people i mentioned including kids is they're helpers by nature (laughs) little kids always help you know how can i help what can i do and when you talk about veterans and you talk about first responders and and police officers and nurses and teachers they're helpers and they want to not always help themselves and I say it because I'm guilty as charged. I'd much rather help somebody else than worry about what I'm doing. <laughs> but there's a, there's a Japanese proverb, and I was telling my students this today, that says you can't pour from an empty vessel. So if, you know, when you help someone else, you end up helping yourself. It's a beautiful right. reciprocal kind of thing that happens. And you see it with mindfulness. You learn it, you teach it, and it continues. And it helps you to help someone. Right. So if there's someone in that helping position, that's why I say seek it out. Like how can we advance that together, reach out and figure that out? So you mentioned 
you know, the, the respondents on these surveys, and you mentioned mm -hmm. also doing an assessment with the, the youth prior to doing any of this work with them, and they're answering that they were at a five of five, or a lot of them answering that they were a five of five on their stress levels. Um, are there metrics or assessments that you do after doing this work with them? Yeah, so I, I you know, I don't necessarily think that numbers and, and statistics are the way to go, but I do think that data drives programming in the sense that it gives you a buy-in and sometimes it justifies, you know, you need numbers. If you say, you know, 87% of people did this, it kind of gives, helps someone contextualize the information right. you're trying to share. Right. So I just kind of wanted to capture that data for myself, really. I kind of ran in hot off the presses with a survey to say, well, at least this will tell me if I'm doing it right or what I need to tweak or change, you know, and what things the kids really respond to and what doesn't resonate so much. And then when I saw that there are so many similarities between the health outcomes in other aspects of resiliency training, I thought, okay, well, what other data can tell me something? Who else is really stressed and what helps them deal with it? Right. So, you know, there's a lot of research out there, newer on um, a lot of these interventions that we're talking about, but that yields some really important information that I think tells us something. At least, you know, even when I give a test in class, I say it's, it's not pass fail it just illuminates something to tell us what we need to do next mm -hmm. yeah and definitely. and that's really the goal with a lot of this data is to say okay what is this telling me and what now what so as far as what you do in your personal life to to cope and i know we talked about coping from what you had seen when you were a detective do you personally employ any type of meditation or mindfulness practice in your, your in your life? Absolutely, and it's funny because I had to um, I, I I had to walk the talk and talk the walk because I continued to say these things are important, but I'm always constantly moving, and I wasn't doing them. I was yeah. saying everybody else should, but I wasn't doing them myself. Yeah. And and that's a great thing about kids; they pick up on authenticity real quick. <laughs> and so I I, I kind of knew I couldn't. I couldn't sell it if I wasn't buying it myself. So I, um, I went to some of these trainings and I got down on the floor with the kids and I did mindfulness nice. and, you know, I had, I felt good. I felt better. I was just doing some breathing and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly living in the next moment. And I think that's part survival, part the patterns we discussed before, you know, you keep repeating a pattern until you decide to stop, I guess. And, and it's a, it's not a practice that, I had to adapt it to me. I'm never going to be a person who can sit down and sit still for a half hour. But while I'm driving in my car, I do mindful breathing. And yep. I'll have, if my kids are in the car with me, I'm like, all right, guys, come on, let's take a few minutes and, you know, we'll do four square breathing. Or yep. um, with little kids, I, I do starfish breathing. And I sit in my office as I'm trying to do a million things in between classes and I stop and I make myself pause and be in just that moment. And I've, translated that not just to sitting and doing a breathing exercise but when I'm at my kids practice or when I take them out to do something and I have the phone beeping and I'm thinking about 10 other things I have to stop and do that same pause to just be where I am and appreciate that moment that I'm in right. and a lot of that mindfulness and that movement comes back to gratitude and the ability to just appreciate where I am right now so that's really become my practice and to be quite honest, my challenge is to how do I pause and just non-judgmentally look at where I am right now and what I need to do and 
and be okay in that. Right, and I think that's the key. You know, you hit it with the non-judgmental piece. Um, you know, a lot of people try to be present in the moment, but then when they are present, they're like, well, this particular moment is painful, so I want to get out of it. Well, right. being in a painful moment doesn't doesn't mean it's a bad, a bad thing. It just makes it a moment that you're aware of and you're aware of the pain. And in even experiencing that in and of itself, you can increase your ability to deal with pain, your ability to deal with hard feelings, um, you know, hard emotions. Um, you, you touched on your children and you're doing some of these drills with them, the, the four square breathing and, uh, um, and the starfish breathing. For our audience, can you tell us what, what that is exactly? Sure, absolutely. And they're on similar principle and they're very simple. And I think um, for kids, you need to keep it simple and keep it, you know, if, if you get too into explanations, I, I feel like I lose them. So it's just kind of that, um, you know, breathe in for, for four, um, hold it and you can trace your finger because a lot of kids need that sensory processing to go with it. But breathe in for four, hold it for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. And just you can do the same thing, tracing your fingers, breathe in as you, you know, go up one side of your finger, breathe out as you go down the other side and, you know, hold your hand out in front of you or a star. You know, we just did some a holiday program in, in a local school. So we used the star and breathe in on one side of the point of the star, breathe out on the other. And it just kind of guides you to take a breath, slowly breathe. And, and I need that practice a lot because I you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot when I teach and I'm, you know, I like to do more, more activities. And when you just kind of take that moment and it, it guides you in a sensory way, um, for kids, I think it, it seems to resonate. And honestly, it does the same thing for grownups. Yeah, I, I fully believe it. And, and I've seen it. And I've seen it in my, my little two and a half year old daughter. I haven't done the starfish and the visual box breathing or, or four square breathing, as you called it. But um I've, I've had her just take a deep breath and then breathe out as though she's blowing out a candle. And that's, you know, if she's in her terrible twos, kind of <laughs> in a tirade of some sort, uh, I will have it, her do that, or my wife will have her do that. And you can totally see how that brings the whatever was escalating completely down, slows things down for her and for us, because as she's getting Absolutely. further and further irate, we're, we're getting more wound up. Um, but if, if she stops and takes a second to breathe, then it allows us to reset. So it's uh, it, it helps everybody out. So coming up on the, the end of our show, what's, what's one thing that we maybe haven't spoken about that you wanted to make sure we addressed? Well, I think we've touched on a lot of it. And I think that concept you just said of, you know, practicing the pause, I think that translates and and kind of transcends through every application that we're talking about regardless of what career and in what path and I think that's part of how we connected is um, you know having worked with veterans and having worked with kids having worked with first responders and people in different professional capacities we all need and we all function better practicing that pause whether you're doing surgery or shooting a weapon or taking a test or whatever it might be and I think that when we do that, I think it creates a different culture of of how people express their emotions and of how people treat others, um, which is, I think, you know, it's, it all becomes very reciprocal in the sense that 
a lot of what people are complaining about and the way our world is today is because of that reactivity. So I think that's a big important um, piece of it to see that interconnectedness between um, different organizations and different applications. I think that's part of it. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I think service is, is kind of humility with a purpose. And, and like I said, I like to stay humble and stay low, but whatever I can do to connect that is really the key and why I wanted to talk to you today. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we, we pay it forward when we do that. And, and that's really my goal is to find other like missioned people who are doing these things. Keep doing it. It's great. And it is changing things. And then let's connect and let's do it bigger and better. Well, yeah. So if, if people do want to connect uh, with you, how do they go about getting in touch with you? Right. So I think probably the easiest way is uh, through LinkedIn. I mean, that's a, a good way to connect business and through message and then to follow it up with whatever method of communication is most effective or desired after that in terms of email or whatever else. But um, it's Kate Tumulty Felice on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also part of Whole Health Ed. Um, but I think probably the first step is, and, and, you know, through my email here at the college, the first step is probably um, LinkedIn and then figuring out you know, which way to proceed from there. Right. And that's how, that's how we connected was on LinkedIn. And it's been, it's been, uh, illuminating, uh, since we've spoken on the phone and via text and now here, uh, on, on the show. So, uh, yeah, definitely appreciate it, Kate. And it's been, uh, it's been awesome having you on the show. Been fascinating. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your, ex your stories, your experiences, the programs that you're doing phenomenal work with, and then your personal practices with us. Truly, I am humbled and honored, and the thought that anybody would take their time to listen to what I have to say is, is uh, disconcerting and wonderful at the same time, <laughs> and I just have to thank you that um, what you're doing is, is, is amazing, and I just really am I'm honored to be whatever piece or part of that I can be, so thank you. Well, thank you, Kate, and uh, I think our listeners, I think they, it will resonate with them. And it's not just veterans that we have listening to the show. So I think, you know, there's people that are battling with their own uh, struggles and having um, people that are not veterans on the show that allows people to know that, you know, everybody can benefit from what it is you're talking about and what it is some of our other guests are talking about. But it's all kind of centered around being mindful, being present, and whatever tool it is that helps you to get there that is going to help to be help to get you to be more resilient and, uh, and, and ultimately have a, a more fulfilling, happier life. So yeah, for, for our listeners, thank you for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. And uh, we are also on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Twitter. And remember, listeners, that you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives 